And don't believe only what you can see. Believe what you cannot see when God says it. And thereby enter his rest. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would take these truths and seal them to our hearts and to our lives. That our Father, you would cause your spirit to mix with the word that's been proclaimed, that faith. That will cause the word to be a blessing in our lives rather than a curse. Oh Lord, we come to you through Christ, who is our life. We praise you that he has secured our rest. And Lord, we thank you for giving to us these weekly Sabbaths to be reminded of the fact that we have ceased from all of our labors as well in order to merit our salvation. So many people throughout the world today are trying to work in some way, work their way to heaven, but God, you have given to us your knowledge and the wonders of your grace to see that Christ is our salvation and our rest. Bless us, Father, Therefore, in being earnest and being diligent and vigilant in our service to you. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In order to perform works of service to God and to man, deeds of mercy and works of necessity as well. But there is one more implication of true biblical rest that I want to mention. Dear ones, biblical rest is characterized by joy. Biblical rest is characterized by contentment. Biblical rest is characterized by peace and assurance in Christ. The work of biblical rest, dear ones, does bring much glory to God and it as well brings much blessing to man. Therefore, when properly understood, the work and activity of biblical rest The work of Sabbath-keeping should not be a burden to any of us. If we properly, truly understand what it means to keep the Sabbath. When we truly understand Sabbath-keeping, we should not find ourselves as if we were under some great and heavy burden. But rather, we should find the expression of our soul as being that of thanksgiving and joy and contentment in Christ. Enjoying our almighty God, 
fellowshipping and communing with the God who has created us, with the God who has redeemed us through the blood of his own son. For even though the biblical rest that we have spoken of does involve work, remember it's not a a day of idleness, it does involve work, it is something that we take great delight in doing. For biblical rest, dear one, sets us free. It's a type, it's a picture of deliverance and bondage and slavery. and into our own inheritance, into the portion which God has granted to us. In Matthew 11, verses 28 through 29, we see very clearly that these, these two concepts that rest involves Labor, and yet, at the same time, it involves contentment and peace and joy. It is Jesus, dear ones, who gives this true rest of which we speak. And Jesus gives this invitation in verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Lord would not have us to believe that we are some kind of free, independent spirit from the, from the Lord himself when we become Christians. We are yoked to Jesus Christ. We are joined in marriage to Christ. We are united to him. But his burden is not light. His commandments, dear ones, are not heavy. They become a great delight to the believer. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. Again, you know, dear ones, you know in your own heart whether you are enjoying the rest which Christ has purchased for you. If you know what this particular verse is speaking of, if you have come to experience this, you have... Become, you have come to experience his rest. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. The eternal significance of this biblical rest I think is dramatically portrayed for us in visionary form in Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 13. Revelation 14, verses 9 through 13, I think, gives us the eternal consequences and significance of 
rest. Verse 9, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And note here, and they have no rest day or night. They have no rest. A restless eternity. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. That's the lot of those who would turn their backs upon the Lord Jesus Christ and would take the mark of the beast. Historically, certainly has uh, the, uh, the uh, interpretation that at that particular time, this beast was living, uh, that this beast was seeking followers. Uh, but that beast, as we see in Revelation, is simply an emissary of the dragon, of Satan. And that dragon is still seeking people today to take that mark upon their foreheads and upon their hands. And that simply means that they follow him. They do his will. Rather than taking the mark of the Lord Jesus Christ upon their heads and being the servants of Christ. And their lot, it says, is that they have no rest, eternal torment, no rest from their anguish. But, contrary to that, verse 12, here is the patience or perseverance of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who will die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. What a contrast. Those in hell without rest. Those in glory in heaven enjoying the rest which God has prepared for them. Augustine captured, I think, the biblical insight in rest when he prayed, man is restless, that is, without rest, until he finds his rest in thee. That's the essence. of the sinful man. He's without rest. It talks about in Isaiah, about the, the Gentile nations, that they are like uh, waves and waters. They are restless. But that's not true of those whose security, whose refuge and foundation is God. What characterizes Christians is they have entered 
the rest. Dear ones, there is nothing in all of life that is more important than entering God's rest. What will your wealth, your health, your success, your education, your degrees, your fame, or anything else matter if you fail to enter God's rest? Listen carefully, children. Not just for the adults, for you as well. There's nothing more important in all of life than entering the rest of God. To enjoy God, to fellowship with God, to know the eternal God through Christ. The letter to the Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were living in Palestine about 63 AD. They had served the Lord under the Mosaic Covenant of the Old Testament with all of its ceremonial rituals. They had been faithful to the temple worship, and the priesthood and sacrificial offerings. And they had, during that period, no doubt received great blessing from God, even though it was the Old Covenant. We must not think that uh, they were not blessed under that covenant. That was a gracious covenant that God established with his people. And yet they had come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. They had come to see that God had established a new covenant through Christ with his people. That the old covenant was fulfilled in the offering and the sacrifice of Christ, his shed blood and his resurrection. God had not changed. His moral laws had not changed. But Jesus Christ had entered into heaven and now he had become their great high priest. They were no longer in need of any human priest. God had simply moved his people under the old covenant from an age of infancy now to, under the new covenant, an age of maturity in which all those Old Testament forms of worship pointed to Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his death, his victorious resurrection and ascension into heaven. You see, the Old Testament, as you look at it, it was an age and a time of promise the New Covenant is a time of fulfillment. The Old Testament was a time of shadows. The New Testament is a time in which the body, even the Lord Jesus Christ, that cast the shadow back on the Old Testament, now has come. So that all of those ceremonies pointed to Christ. It was always and only through Christ that even the people of the Old Testament could approach God. They looked forward to the sacrifice that would come. We look back. They must believe. They, must, they needed to believe even as we need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the specific problem that's addressed in 
in this letter to the Hebrews is the need for perseverance. It's the need for, for steadfastness and endurance in the faith on the part of these Jewish Christians. For Palestine at that time was filled with Jewish leaders, with people who were absolutely hostile to the Christian faith, hostile to, to the Lord Jesus Christ and anyone who put their faith in Christ. They put Christ to death and they sought to destroy all of his followers as well. This letter to the Hebrews was divinely inspired, therefore, to encourage these Hebrew Christians not to forsake their faith in Christ and thus return to a Christless Judaism, regardless of the persecution that they may have to endure. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel, no matter what you may have to endure in this life. The trials may come, but realize what's at stake. A restless eternity or an eternity of rest. It was written to warn them of the eternal consequences of trampling the Son of God underfoot and treating His precious blood as if it were really the blood of a common criminal because in turning back from the Christian faith they would be acknowledging that his blood his sacrifice and his resurrection were unimportant insignificant and really didn't matter therefore Christ died upon the cross in the midst of two criminals and he must have been one himself. That's what the Jews believed. Those who did not receive Christ, that's what they believed. He died as a criminal. And so to turn your back at this particular point upon Christ, to go back to that would be, in effect, to say his blood was the blood of a criminal. That's why we find such sobering words in Hebrews chapter 10 beginning with verse 26, as well as, I want you to notice, very sobering words that shake us with great fear and trepidation, and yet the encouragement that comes to those who truly believe in Christ in the same passage. Verse 26, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, 
says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now comes the transition. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. These Hebrew Christians no doubt thought to themselves, I simply want rest. Rest from the persecutions that I'm going through right now. I want relief from suffering for myself and for my family. But you see, dear ones, God wanted them to realize that the temporary rest that they might gain for a few, few short years here upon the earth would lead them to an eternity of restlessness in hell. God, through his prophet, pleads with his people not to be foolish like Esau, whose eyes were only on the present and who sold his birthright for some stew. Likewise, these Jewish Christians are not to so fix their eyes on this present suffering that they sell their birthright of God's eternal rest in heaven for a fleeting morsel of temporary rest from persecution and trials here upon the earth. For like Esau, they will not find a place of repentance to regain the inheritance that they have lost. Don't throw away your faith in Christ, dear ones, because you will reap if you faint not. If you endure, you will reap. Rather, God, through the writer to the Hebrews, calls these Christians to do that which is impossible for any man to do apart from the grace of God. And that is... To believe. Popular saying of the 1969 Mets who went all the way to the World Series and won it. You've got to believe. 
Now, they didn't understand or have the foggiest notion as to what true faith is. But Paul, in essence, or the writer to the Hebrews, whether it was Paul or some other writer, uh, we don't know for sure, but, but the writer to the Hebrews says very clearly, you've got to believe. But you can't do it on your own because faith is a supernatural gift. By grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Second Thessalonians 3.2 says, Not all men have faith. Philippians chapter 1 verse 21 says, To you it has been granted not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his name. It is a gracious gift. In Hebrews chapter 11, we could spend several weeks in that chapter talking about faith. Just turn with me there very quickly, though, as I just summarize a couple of things from this chapter as to what true faith is and what, what unbelief or some kind of spurious or false faith is. Verse 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. <clears throat> Dear ones, faith in essence is taking God at His word. We can make faith very uh, profound, but in essence, faith is taking God at his word. Whether I understand it, whether I can explain it, is not the critical issue. The fact that God has declared it, and I stand upon that firmly, that's true faith. Now, I may at times not appear to be standing, I may appear to be rather wobbly. I may be shifting as it appears. I may even uh, appear at times to be flat on my face. But true faith, whether it's weak or whether it's strong, true faith has as its object the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word, His promises. You may be, at times, it may seem as if you are barely clinging to Christ. It may seem that you are not holding Him tightly at all. You may seem so weak. But it's at those times and at all times that Christ clings to you. Faith, according to this first verse in Hebrews 11, needs no other evidence or proof to substantiate the Word of God. The fact that God says it is that I believe it, I cherish it, I cling to it, I rest in it. If the whole world tells me I'm a fool, if the whole world seeks to disprove what God has said, 
I will align myself against the world and with God. When Athanasius, that great defender of the Trinity, was told that the whole world is against you, Athanasius says, well, Athanasius is against the whole world. See, that's an evidence. That's a sign of true faith. True faith presupposes, therefore, dear ones, that knowledge of God has been given. That you have been given the word of God. You cannot exercise faith in your feeling. You cannot exercise faith in what I say. You cannot exercise faith in what anybody says. It is only in the, the inviolable, unbreakable, certain promises and word of God that we can believe. In fact, this word that's used of the evidence is quite interesting. This word uh, is used in the papyri of that time to be synonymous with the title deed. A title deed for property that's purchased. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. It's the title deed, even though you don't have and see all of the promises, the inheritance yet. Faith says, I don't need to see it. I've got the title deed in God's word, God's promises. God has given me his spirit. That's sufficient. Notice how many times, I'll just mention a couple in this chapter very quickly. Notice how... In verse 7, by faith Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen. Not yet seen. See, evidence of things that were given to him, that were spoken to him, he believed God even though he didn't yet see them. Again, notice in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would afterward receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. If Men, if you're like me, you don't want to be in the car with me when I don't know where I'm uh, going. Uh, it's not a it's not a pretty sight. My family can attest to that, um, and, and therefore I always try to uh, map out where I'm going before before I get there. And in spite of how many times my wife says, "Why don't you just pull over and ask somebody?" It just doesn't seem to click. The old pride uh, rears up. But Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. That's faith. God said, go, Abraham, and I will show you 
where you should go. Abraham took God at his promise. Furthermore, faith, dear ones, means being willing to suffer affliction with Christ rather than to enjoy the pleasures of this life as with Moses in verses 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Notice, for he looked to the reward. Didn't have it in hand, but he looked with an eye to the reward that he would receive from God. The rest of Hebrews chapter 11 speaks of many who did see great victories won. And that's enumerated in verses 30 through 35. And then we're introduced in verse 35 to those who did not see the same kinds of, of victories in their lives, but rather... It says that they endured mockings in verse 36 and scourgings, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and sawn in two. They were tempted and slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. All of these things happened, and yet they too believed. God is sovereign, dear ones. I don't understand and know why God brings certain afflictions into some people's lives as opposed to others? I don't know. I don't have that kind of wisdom. But I do know that the Scripture teaches that in good times or bad times, Paul said he had learned to be content in Christ because only Christ could not be taken from him. He had found his rest in Jesus Christ. And so we need to learn, dear ones, that true faith, again, is not leaning on our feelings, our interpretations, our thoughts, our ideas. In effect, acting like charismatics when we profess to be reformed people. But rather, leaning upon the unchangeable character and word of God. That's maturing in faith. And so in Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, I won't read that section, but God in that section warns these Jewish Christians not to follow in the paths of their fathers who rebelled against their covenant-keeping God, who had graciously delivered them from bondage in Egypt by his almighty hand. Don't follow in the same direction, in the same footsteps that your fathers did. They rebelled against me, though I had delivered them and shown to them my love and my mercy and my grace. And yet they disbelieved. They disobeyed. They did not, therefore, enter my rest, God says. You see, this is encouraging to me 
I hope it is to you too, that we can learn from the sins of our parents. We don't have to follow in the sins of our parents. We don't have to follow in the sins of our forefathers. That we can learn to follow in the paths of righteousness. And in this particular section, Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 16, just carefully note as we go through this section very quickly, kind of a survey of this section, but notice that the various kinds of rest that are mentioned here. This really is the critical, the key word here is rest. First of all, we're confronted with the rest of God in creation. When God rested from all his works of creation, he ceased from the wonders of his creation in order to enjoy, to take delight in all that he had created. When God said it was very good at the end of creation, he was enjoying his creation. Well, we find that rest referred to in chapter 4, verse 4. For he has spoken in a certain place on the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, we find this rest referred to in verse 10. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. That's the first rest that we find mentioned here. Then we find another rest mentioned, the rest of the promised land under Moses and Joshua, which was a rest from bondage and slavery to the cruel rule of Pharaoh and those taskmasters in Egypt and to the gods of Egypt, which they were bound, and rather a rest into a land flowing with milk and honey in which they could enjoy God and enjoy the inheritance which God had blessed them with. Now, that rest is used in chapter 3, verse 11, uh, chapter 3, verse 18, chapter 4, verse 3, and chapter 4, verse 5. We also find that, that uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews refers to uh, specifically David. David, it says in verses 7 and 8, David uh, looks back to the same rest and says that that rest is still available today. Verse 7 says, again, he designates a certain day saying in David, today. After such a long time as it's been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So again, that rest is available in the time of David. We find also uh, a spiritual and eternal rest referred to in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. In essence, there, uh, this particular rest is, it would be synonymous with eternal life. That's what we're talking about here. Verse 3 uses it the same way. For we, have, for we who have believed do enter that rest. Verse 11. 
Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. The next rest that we find mentioned here is Christ's own rest from his works of salvation. In verse 10, for he, that is Christ, he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. As Christ ceased from his works of eternal salvation just as God did from his. And then the final rest uh, that we want to look at is a rest, uh, an earthly Sabbath rest that is spoken of, the, the weekly Sabbath. And that's in chapter 4, verse 9. Therefore remains, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. So those are the various rests that we find in, in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. <clears throat> chapter 3 verses 11 and 18 we are confronted with the word rest this rest referred to in these passages is the rest of the promised land or Canaan which was only a faint dim picture of that eternal heavenly rest of God but Israel of old it says could not enter that rest of Canaan which pictured the rest which was to come eternal life they could not enter that rest in fact the whole generation of Israel 20 years of age and older perished in the wilderness why they were part of the visible church why did they not enter God's rest chapter 3 verse 19 tells us so we see they could not enter in because of unbelief unbelief they couldn't enter into eternal life into God's rest chapter 4 verse 2 says for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them some might say well did they really know the truth did they really have the gospel did God make it clear to them what was at stake? The writer says, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. And then chapter 4, verse 6 says, Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. They did not enter because they did not believe the word of God. Dear ones, I want to say there is no neutrality when it comes to the ordinances of God and receiving God's ordinances, you cannot remain in a static position. The ordinances of God, whether it is the word preached, whether it is the Lord's Supper or whether it is baptism, all of God's ordinances 
are either going to bring blessing or cursing. They're going to soften our hearts or they're going to harden our hearts. And here we find very clearly the preaching of the word, the proclamation of the word. It went out to them, but it hardened their hearts. And they did not enter the rest, even though it was preached to them faithfully by none other than even a Moses. They hardened their hearts to the truth. Because it wasn't mixed with faith in those who heard it, the scripture says. And you know, it's the same way, not only with the word of God in that ordinance, but it's also true with regard to the other ordinances as well with regard to baptism. And I'm not simply talking about taking the sign of baptism upon ourselves and then by our life denying what that sign means and therefore incurring the wrath of God. But I'm also speaking of ignoring and neglecting the ordinances of God. For the one in the Old Testament who refused to apply the sign of circumcision incurred the curse of God just as much as the person who took the sign of circumcision and denied it by his life. In other words, to ignore and neglect the sign as well as to receive the sign spuriously incurred the wrath of God. For it says those who did not receive it were to be judged and cut off of, from Israel. You remember what happened to Moses on the way to Egypt. God nearly took his life because he had not applied the sign. He had neglected it. He had ignored it. He had put it off. And I have now would have you think with regard to the Lord's Supper. If we believe, any of us, that we can ignore and neglect the Lord's Supper and escape that discipline from God that fell upon those in 1 Corinthians who partook of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, we're only fooling ourselves. You cannot remain static with regard to the ordinances of God. To refuse the ordinances incurs God's judgment as much as to partake unworthily. The same is true of the word of God and Sabbath itself. To refrain from coming to worship to refrain from keeping the Sabbath will incur God's discipline as much as when we use the Sabbath in an inappropriate manner. We can't remain neutral. We may want to say, well, if I had been you know, one of those people of Israel, I would have believed. If I had been in their shoes, I would have, or sandals, I would have believed. 
I mean, look at all the signs and the wonders that God did. I would have believed. But you see, that's just the pitfall. That's just the problem with our understanding of faith. Our view of faith is seeing is believing. But that's not true, genuine faith. Jesus, you remember, pointed out to Thomas who were the more blessed. Those who see, believe. Those who have not seen and yet believe. Because the essence of faith, dear ones, is simply taking God at his word. Whether you see it, whether you can cling to believing God, trusting him. And I'm not talking about here a faith. When I talk about true faith, I'm not saying that one with true faith cannot have weak faith. Listen to just a, a few couple of quotes I found extremely helpful trying to distinguish again weak faith from a fallacious faith. This is from the Doctrine of Faith by John Rog- Rogers, uh, published in 1634. Weak faith is true faith as precious though not so great as strong faith the same Holy Ghost is the author the same gospel is the instrument if it never proves great yet weak faith shall save for it interests us in Christ and makes him and all his benefits ours For it is not the strength of our faith that saves, but the truth of our faith. Not the weakness of our faith that condemns, but the want or lack of our faith that condemns. For the least faith layeth hold on Christ, and so will save us. Neither are we saved by the worth or the quantity of our faith, but by Christ listen carefully, but by Christ who is laid hold on by a weak faith as well as a strong. Just as weak, just as a weak hand that can put meat into the mouth shall feed and nourish the body as well as if it were a strong hand. Seeing the body is not nourished by the strength of the hand, but by the goodness of the meat. One other quote. This comes from Body of Divinity by Thomas Watson, written in 1660. We must distinguish between weakness of faith and nullity. A weak faith is true. The bruised reed is but weak, yet it is such a it is such as Christ will not break. Though thy faith be but weak, yet be not discouraged. You hear that, dear ones? Be not discouraged. A weak faith may receive a strong Christ. 
A weak hand can tie the knot in marriage as well as a strong. A weak eye might have, se might have seen the brazen serpent. The promise is not made to strong faith, but to true. The promise doth not say, Whosoever hath a giant faith that can remove mountains, that can stop the mouth of lions, shall be saved. But whosoever believes, be his faith never so small. And that's the very point that the Lord Jesus Christ is seeking to emphasize in Luke chapter 17. When the disciples in verse 5 say, after Christ tells them that they are to, to forgive their brother if he comes seven times in a day, their response is, increase our faith. We don't have that kind of faith, Lord. And this is what we find the Lord saying, so the Lord said, it's, it's not the size of your faith that counts. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Faith, dear ones, is not based upon how strong your faith is. Faith is based upon how strong Jesus Christ is. Faith is based upon Christ and His abiding and eternal Word, which can never fail. Our faith can grow. It can increase. But if you have the faith even of a mustard seed, if God, if Christ had told us and given us this promise, you can speak to that mulberry plant and tell it to be uprooted it doesn't matter whether our faith was strong or whether it was little if God had given us that particular promise and commandment we could save that mulberry bush be uprooted and it would be now lest we begin to take glory in our own uh, faith and our obedience to the truth God, through Christ, makes it very clear in verse 7 and following. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, that's faith. When you've obeyed God, when you've trusted his word and you've done all that he commanded, even forgiving your brother seven times when he sins against you, don't take pride in yourselves. Don't pat yourself on the back and say, look, what a good boy am I. This is what you're to say. We are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Carefully note, 
that the rest God's people enter into and enjoy is specifically called God's rest in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4. For he has spoken in a certain place on, of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. He rested from all his works. This is God's rest that we enter into. Thus, it's not a rest that is inherent and natural, that is a constitutional right of mine. This is a rest that God bestows upon us. I don't deserve it. God graciously grants it to me. And I can only enter, therefore, God's rest, God's way. Not my way. For God's ways are infinitely higher than my ways. And God's thoughts are infinitely higher than mine. It's the rest which God entered into in enjoying all that he had created in reflecting upon his own attributes. And if we might say this without being sacrilegious, God enjoying his own glory. You know, that's not a sin for God to do. For God to enjoy himself and his glory. That's the rest that we enter into. Enjoying God, his works, his creation. God did not rest on the Sabbath for his health, as we've noted before. He rested in order that men, women, and children might share in that glorious rest, that eternal rest, as well as in the earthly Sabbaths. And so, look with me at verse 9. And we're wrapping things up, God willing, at this point. Look at verse 9. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. <clears throat> In order to understand this particular verse, I think I need to emphasize two words that are in this verse. The first word is the word in at least the version I'm using. It says remains. There remains. Therefore, that word is the Greek word apolipo, which means, quite literally, to be left behind, to leave behind. To, and in this case, as we apply that particular uh, translation to this passage, there is left behind, therefore, a rest for the people of God. And it is in the present tense. There is presently a rest left behind for the people of God. And there continues to be a rest left behind for the people of God. Now, what is it that is left behind for God's people to keep and to enjoy? Literally, it is the Greek word sabbatismos. I've mentioned this before. Ten times throughout this section, the inspired writer uses the word kataposis for rest, both before and after that verse. To speak of God's rest, to speak of the rest in Canaan, 
to, to refer to our eternal rest. But here, the inspired writer uses a different word. Why the change? That alerts us to something that the writer is seeking to convey to us. There is left behind a sabbatismos, not a cataposis, for the people of God. That particular word, and I've, I've actually now come to uh, uh, moving on from from apolipo, the second, the first word, to the second word, sabbatismos. Sabbatismos comes from it's a uh, a word just as we have taken uh, baptismos or baptizo and anglicized it so that we haven't really translated it into English. We've simply anglicized it so that baptize or baptism is actually the Greek word just brought from Greek into English. Well, in the same way, the, this particular word sabbatismos comes from uh, Shabbat. And it is, that's the Hebrew word for Sabbath. It is the, the Greek form of simply taking the, the Hebrew word Shabbat and bringing it into Greek. It's not used in the New Testament outside of this instance. A form of that word is used in Exodus 16.30 in the verbal form. This is, this is more a noun form that we find in Hebrews, but in Exodus 16.30, we find that these words are spoken by, <clears throat> by Moses. God had said to the people, tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord, in verse 23. Verse 29, See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you on the sixth day Bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of the place on the seventh day. Verse 30. So the people rested on the seventh day. Literally, it's sabbatizine in the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures in the Septuagint. They kept the Sabbath. If I might uh, just uh, interject at this point, I brought with me a translation from the Syriac the Peshitta, and which is an ancient translation of the uh, Greek scriptures into the Syriac language. And Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, is translated this way. It is therefore the duty of the people of God to keep the Sabbath. That is the way that uh, it comes across and translated into the, the Syriac. What we find in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9 is, is what is that that is left behind? That which is left behind can't be entirely future. So we're not talking about the eternal rest of God here. We're talking about that which is left behind for God's people to celebrate, to enjoy which will continually remind them of the eternal Sabbath of God's rest. And that is the earthly Sabbath, which God has left behind, the Sabbatismus.
And in verse 10 of chapter 4, note, after having stated there remains, there is left behind there for a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath keeping for the people of God, for he, that is Christ, who has entered his rest, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. In other words, not only now do we celebrate our earthly Sabbaths because God from the beginning and creation ceased from his works, but we now, in addition, celebrate the Sabbath because Jesus Christ ceased from his works of salvation through his sinless life, through the sufferings that he endured, through his death, and anguish upon the cross, and he entered into his rest through his resurrection and ascension into heaven and was seated at the right hand of God. So now we have both God's rest from creation and Christ's rest in the new creation as reasons for keeping the Sabbath every week. Which reminds us, dear ones, again, that as Christ ceased from his works, we are to cease from working for our salvation. We must come to the place to realize we cannot add one speck to our salvation. We cannot make ourselves in any way acceptable or more acceptable than we are already in Christ. If we were to work for all eternity, we could not make ourselves more acceptable to God than Jesus Christ is. And it's in His glorious righteousness that we stand. I'm convinced that 90 of the counseling problems that I deal with could be resolved and dealt with most of the problems that you go through, dear ones, if you really believed and practiced that truth. Rather than running from Christ when you sin, rather than becoming angry and bitter, fleeing to Christ realizing that He loves you and accepts you, that you are acceptable before God. It doesn't condone our sins at all. But that kind of grace and mercy compels us to return and to seek forgiveness. But what does all of this have to do, this idea of rest, have to do with persecution, affliction, and not forsaking the faith? What does Sabbath-keeping have to do with persecution, affliction, and not forsaking the faith? Very much. To weekly keep and sanctify and enjoy each earthly Sabbath, dear ones, brings us face-to-face with the glorious hope of God's heavenly and eternal rest from all of our labors and afflictions and trials and temptations of this life. Just as the Old Testament sacrifices continued until the Lamb of God laid down his life for the sheep, 
And then those animal sacrifices ceased, for the fulfillment had come. So the weekly Sabbath, dear ones, continues until the fulfillment comes when we enter our eternal and heavenly Sabbath before God. And so the Hebrew Christians are urged in this passage to hold fast to to Christ in the midst of great persecution. They are exhorted to take their eyes off of their afflictions and off of their desire to be at rest from all of those afflictions at any price. Rather, they are to look to the one who has already entered his rest, the Lord Jesus Christ. They are to look to their great high priest who intercedes for them. They are to find in him the strength that they need. And they are to continue to celebrate each Sabbath, which is left behind for them as a time of blessed rest and fellowship with God in expectation of the promise which God has made to them. How do you prepare? How do you prepare for that eternal Sabbath? By believing, by resting, by trusting in Jesus Christ. How do you prepare for the earthly Sabbath? The same way. Resting, trusting in, availing yourself of all that Christ has won, purchased for you. How is the Sabbath or the Lord's Day to be sanctified? Question 117 of the larger catechism. The Sabbath or Lord's Day is to be sanctified by and holy resting all the day, not only from such works as are at all times sinful, but even from such worldly employments and recreations as are on other days lawful. And making our delight to spend the whole time except so much of it as is to be taken up in works of necessity and mercy in the public and private exercises of God's worship. Now note, and to that end, we are to prepare our hearts, not just when the Lord's Supper is celebrated, but for the Sabbath, to prepare our hearts and with such foresight, diligence, and moderation to dispose and seasonably dispatch our worldly business that we may be the more free and fit for the duties of that day. What can you do? Just by way of practical consideration, what can you do that doesn't have to be done today that you can prepare ahead of time that will free you to be able to spend this day and make it more glorious, more worshipful for you and your family? Make those preparations. No need to be rushing around, uh, wearing ourselves out, because it's the Lord's Day when we have six days in which to prepare for it, but rather to be able to sanctify it so that we can be filled with worship and service to God. Dear ones, there's nothing in life worth forsaking that rest for. And so as Paul says, or as the writer to the Hebrews says, diligently strive, therefore, to enter that rest. Diligently strive to enter that rest because faith, though it's resting in Christ, it's not an inactivity either. It's clinging to Christ. 
Find your life, find your peace, find your assurance. Find this Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.